It is now officially winter. I am Holly Worsley, and I'm one of the elders here at Lake Forest Davidson. And uh, what a joy to share the message with you this morning. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to jump right in, okay? Father God, I thank you so much that you tell us again and again and again that you are a God that meets us, uh, Emmanuel, what we just celebrated. You are God with us in every moment, every step of our story. Thank you. Father, thank you that if we walked in here this morning and we are in devastation, that we are hurting, that we are weighed down, that you are God with us. And if we walked in here this morning and we are blessed with joy and we are powering ahead in life, that that is a gift from you and you are Emmanuel, you are God with us. Lord, help us to still our hearts and our minds and our souls enough this morning to hear from your word. Would you, would you speak into our individual stories and teach us and change us and draw us to you in love and grace? We ask and pray that in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, if I was to say to you, think back over the landscape of your life, and when was a time that you found yourself saying, how did I get here? How did I, how did I get here? I mean, how did this happen? Maybe it happened to you. Maybe it happened to someone you love. Maybe you're there right now, and, and it's, it's just this heavy, even as I say that, you can feel the heaviness that you felt at that time or in this moment. God, how did my story end up here? Maybe you had to ask a question at that moment in your life. You had to say, God, in spite of what I see or my circumstances out here, in spite of what I can see, and, and right now it feels like there's no way out, would you help me believe that you're still in control? Maybe you had to really ask yourself in that moment when you said, God, how did I get here? You had to ask yourself, can I really trust God with my story? That's where we pick up in Daniel, the book of Daniel. We're going through it as a church right now. We're trying to read it as a church right now. We pick up in Daniel 3 this week. And God's people are in Babylon. And just in case you're like me, I became a Christian as an adult, and ancient geography is a little fuzzy in your head, I have provided a map for you. Where God's children came from and where they were taken to, they were over on the left side of your map around the area of Jerusalem. And, and God had made a covenant with this people, the Israelites. And here was the covenant. Here was the deal. Here was the unbreakable promise. He said, and this is really still what we all want today, I'll give you land. I'll give you somewhere to live that's safe. And I'll give you a people to be with. I'll give you land and family, and what I want you to do in return, the other side of the covenant, is you live in the way that I have instructed and guided you to live. Here's why. Not that you're burdened, not so you have a bunch of rules to follow, because that's where you're going to find real life. That's where you're going to find freedom and grace and hope and protection and wisdom. But Israel had a bunch of bad kings. And they listened to those human voices and the voices around them more than they listened to God who had delivered them. And so God said, okay. God didn't cause them to be taken to Babylon. 
but he released his hands from their protection. And Nebuchadnezzar II came in and just absolutely obliterated Jerusalem. And he took with him as captives the youngest, the smartest, the strongest, the most promising young men. He ripped them from their families, never to be seen again. And he took them with him to Babylon. And I want you to look with me for just a second at this image of what these young men who had just been ripped out of their families and their culture and their prisoners, and they come up on this. This was Nebuchadnezzar's palace, his city, Babylon. It's literally called, Babylon means the city of God, not the one true God, any God that Nebuchadnezzar wanted to tell you to follow. Babylon means the city of God. Nebuchadnezzar II reigned for 40 years of the 70 years that Babylon, he was a brilliant builder, a brilliant man in the battlefield, and he was also completely insane. This city was 56 miles of wall around the outside. It was massive. The walls were 300 feet tall, 25 feet thick. And then there was a space, and then there was a second wall. The walls, the outer wall went down 35 feet, so there's no digging under this one. There was a moat that went all the way around the outside wall. The Euphrates River flowed through Babylon. And at night, they would lift up a drawbridge that was 150 feet long to protect the city. Around the outside of this wall, there were 250 towers. Listen to this. They were 450 feet tall, each of them. Massive. And then in the middle, there's a ziggurat. In case you're a little dusty, that's a pyramid with steps up it. That was the temple to their main god, Marduk. And it was a giant golden statue of him. But not just one god. There was literally a pantheon of gods in this ziggurat. And, and they would say, these are all our gods. That's what these young men, tired, terrified, alone, that's what they're walking up to. And they had never seen wealth and power like this. Never. And here was Nebuchadnezzar's plan for their life. His plan for their life was complete and total indoctrination into the Babylonian way of life. They were given new names. The names that they had in Israel, they represented the one true God. Their name literally represented the one true God. The names were taken from them. And the names Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, those were Babylonian names. We know them by those names if you've ever heard the story because that's how indoctrinated they were into the Babylonian way of life. And those Babylonian names represented Babylonian gods. So every time they said their Babylonian name that had been forced upon them, they were sort of subtly saying, and I follow this Babylonian God, or they were meant to be. They were taken from their families forever. They were taken to a foreign land with foreign customs. They were taught a new language, Akkadian. They were told, there's not one true God. You're in Babylon now. I mean, there's a, there's a pantheon of choices here. And I think these guys were saying to themselves, how did I get here? God, how, how did I get here? Friends, if you've ever looked around at the university campus, 
or at school or at work or in your neighborhood, maybe even in your own family, and you've thought, man, I feel really alone trying to follow God right now. We read these stories like Daniel 3, even if we've heard them before, because we need to remember. We are a forgetful people. We need to remember that you and I, if we're following Christ today, we stand in a long, long, long line of faithful people who had to ask themselves a question. God, in spite of what I see in front of me, help me believe that you are still in control. Help me believe that you are trustworthy of my story. Help me to be brave in you, God. So we're reading the book of Daniel, and maybe you're like me. You've never read the Bible until you're adult, or you've never picked it up, or it's a little dusty. Here's a tip. Open it to the middle. You'll hit Proverbs or Psalms. Go to the right, okay? Then you hear a bunch of weird names like Jeremiah and stuff like that. And when you hit Ezekiel, it's a big fat book. Daniel's right after it. The good thing about us reading Daniel together is it's short, okay? So tip, when you start reading the Bible, you want to start with short books, okay? Then it's high accomplishment, right? Okay, so we're reading Daniel, and we're in Daniel 3. The guys walk up on the city, this mighty wealth, this mighty power, nothing that they've ever known. It's all changed. It's all different. In this moment in Daniel 3, they come to a crossroads. And they know when they're on the way to this moment, they know that it is a crossroads of their life. It is a crossroads of their life. And Daniel 3 starts like this. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold. It was 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide, and he, he set it up on the plain of Dura. And in the province of Babylon, he, he summoned the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the advisors, the treasurers, the judge, the magistrates, and all of the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of this image that he had set up. Try to picture this. He had this mighty palace in Babylon, but he also owned so much land that he was over. This was in another province called Dura. And he literally, the scriptures list those people that he called twice. And it lists them twice to say, do you get that anybody who was anybody was there? It was on a plane. You could see forever. And he took this image. It was 90 feet tall. It's been compared to the Colossus of Rhodes. 90 feet tall. And what they would do is they would, they would build the image out of wood. And then they would beat down sheets of gold. And they would cover this wooden statue in all in gold, in sheets of gold. Then they would dress this enormous image in fine linen and gold and jewels. Can you even imagine what that looked like on that plane? This massive image, this mighty group of people, Nebuchadnezzar in the front. But it wasn't just the people, it was what he created. He created this moment that was like a pinnacle of decision. Listen to this. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, nations and people of every language. See, Nebuchadnezzar had gone to Ammon and Tyre and Egypt and Jerusalem. And wherever he went, he destroyed and he ripped people from their homes, their families, and their culture. And so there was every language there. You are commanded. As soon as you hear, hear him building this moment. 
the sound of the horn and the flute and the zither and the lyre and the harp and the pipe and all kinds of music. You'll fall down and you'll worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down will be immediately thrown in that furnace over there. And, you, and it's right there. It's this huge furnace. And they were like a dome. And there was a hole in the top where you could drop in the fuel. And there were doors on the side. And you could literally, they had been, you know, using it to make the metalworks. And it was terrifying. They could see it. Friends, none of them believed that there was a God in this image. What they did is they brought um, enchanters and sorcerers and astrologers. And those astrologers came and, and they, they prayed spells and incantations and magic onto this image. And the idea was that they would entice and threaten and bind an evil deity into this image. And then they would ask for its powers. I want you to understand, this was like the face of evil. This was the face of evil. There was power here. Do not be mistaken. There was great power being enticed. And this is a crossroads for these young men. They know it. They're walking towards it. They know this is a crossroads. And the story goes on. It says, therefore, as soon as they heard the sound, and see how it says it again? It says it twice because the other wants us to know that we know that we know the height of this moment. When you hear the horn and the flute and the harp and all kinds of music, all the nations and the people of every language fell down and worshipped this image of gold that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Last week we, we learned that as Christians we don't have to die on every hill. As we try to live in Babylon, we don't have to die on every single hill. We can ask God for, for wisdom and for guidance and for instruction to, to love people well and love him well, but not all the time having to be saying, I'm a Christian, I do it differently, so we don't have to die on every hill. And they try that again. When everybody fell down, think about it, there were like thousands of people here. They just didn't. They just quietly stood there. They didn't make a scene. They didn't make a deal of it. They just quietly stood there. Nebuchadnezzar didn't see them. He was all about Nebuchadnezzar, right? He was all about his glory. But some other guys saw him. They said, are you totally kidding me? These are those Jews that have come into our country, and they've taken my place as a scribe, my place as the leaders. I hate those guys. Let's get rid of them. So the scripture said that some astrologers came forward, and they they go to Nebuchadnezzar and they just pump his vanity, right? Like he needed that anymore. And he says, they said, oh, king, live forever. But there's some Jews that, have, that, that you set over the affairs of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, you know the ones, right? They don't pay any attention to you. It, your majesty, they neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold that you have set up. And Nebuchadnezzar was He's furious, and he says, go get him and bring him in front of me. And now I want you to try to get a sense of what this would have felt like for those young men. He's, they are literally standing, the three of them, before this mighty king. Everybody's watching. He says, you know what, guys? We're going to have a personal ceremony now. You three and me. 
let me just review. We're going to play that music again, and everybody's going to watch. And when we finish, you're going to bow down. You are going to bow down and worship that. Or I'm going to throw you in the furnace right there. Hey, make it seven times hotter. Can you feel that, guys? Okay, personal ceremony. Ready? And by the way, what kind of God's going to save you from that? But these guys knew that this was going to be a crossroads. They came knowing. And so they say this, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he's able to deliver us from your majesty's hand. Here's the linchpin of the whole chapter, the whole scene. But if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods. We will not worship that image of gold that you have set up, that, you, that evil that you will set up. This is our line. This is our line. Friends, why, why was this their line? Why was that so intense in their hearts? Because they were actually being asked to make a, a loyalty oath to this evil image. They were being asked to make an, a loyalty oath, oath that, that Nebuchadnezzar had taken their names, their heritage, their family, their future. He owned it. And now he's saying, now I'm going to own what you worship. Deep in your heart. Now I'm going to own what you worship. I'm owning all of you. And I think they probably could hear teaching from when they were little. See, God gave the Israelites the Ten Commandments. And every Israelite boy would have known them by heart. And again, they weren't meant to be binding and make us feel like we had a bunch of rules and make our life stale. They were meant to protect us mainly from ourselves. Mainly from ourselves. And so I think these young boys were probably thinking, first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. That before me there means in my presence. See, this is a worldview issue. Every other nation in the world believed there was a pantheon of gods. They believed that there's all kinds of spirituality in this world, and you just get to pick, and it's just anyways cool. And Israel, God made a covenant with these people. He raised them up, and he said, I'm the one true God. Don't believe the lie that there's a pantheon. And I think they heard the second commandment ringing in their heart and mind. It said, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven, on the, on the earth, on the waters below. Don't replace me with other stuff. It won't work, God says. And this next part, a lot of people haven't read this part really closely, and it brought me a lot of hope when I made a commitment to Christ as an adult. Listen to this. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children of the sins of their parents to a third and fourth generation. You're like, that doesn't sound very hopeful. Okay, that's not the hopeful part. What they understood that we sometimes don't is that when we forfeit our obedience to God, it affects not just ourselves. If I forfeit my obedience to God, it affects my family, affects my neighbors, my friends. 
my coworkers. We want to believe that our faith walk is just for me, and that is not how God made us. God put us in community. He intended that we were where we are, and they know that if they bow down to that um, image, that the guilt is on their whole family, not just them. But here's the hope. But showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. So in my dorm room, when I made that little commitment in Chapel Hill to follow God, Jesus now, because we live under the new commandment, interjected himself in my life story, in my family line. Jesus interrupted the patterns. He interrupted the decisions. And he said, now we're going to do a new thing. Now we're going to do a new thing, and this is going to be the way that I designed it, and it's going to be in my wisdom and my protection and my beauty. And they had that ringing in their hearts and their minds. They knew them. It was a line. They said, we believe God can, but if he does not, I will still worship him. I will trust him with my story. I believe that God can heal me, but if he does not, I will trust him. I believe that he can provide for me in this situation, but if he does not, I will trust him. I believe he can mend this relationship and heal it, but if he does not, I will trust him. Because here's what they were really saying. If you follow Christ, it's a win-win. He will deliver you in this life. He has delivered me from myself from evil that was outside of me, from things that have happened in my life. He has delivered my husband, my children. He will deliver you in this life. But if he doesn't, he will deliver you from death itself. If you follow Christ, it's a win-win. That's what these young boys were saying to this mighty king. And he was furious. He, it, the scriptures literally translated says the expression on his face changed. It went from pride and indignation to fury, to rage, to insanity. And he looked at those guys and he said, come and get them. And he bound up those young men and he took them to the top of the platform where they could throw things in the top of the furnace. And those guards had to be strong because these were young men. And they had to be right on top of them. And they were bound. And they struggled and pulled them up there. And the whole plane is watching. Now it's just a threat for everyone to be sure that you never cross Nebuchadnezzar. And they threw him into the fire. The fire was so blazing hot that the soldiers were burned and died. Then Nebuchadnezzar walks around. Everybody's watching. There's a side door to the furnace. He looks inside to just gloat and to glory as their bodies are disintegrated. He says, we threw three men in, right? Yes, your king. I see four. I, I see four, and the fourth is of a son of God's. Or Nebuchadnezzar's mouth says, That's some kind of God. They're not being burned up. They're not dying. I'll let you read the rest of the story. It's quite a story. But here's a thought. A lot of times in God's word, um, we can struggle with miracles. 
and, and we can say, well, you know, it was an earthquake, it was a fault line under the city, or the, the wind blew back the waves and, and dried it out. You know, God brought um, a sickness upon them suddenly, and, but that's just, you know, but this one you can't really bypass. It's a miracle. And so let's talk about miracles for a second. My favorite thing about this church, my very favorite thing, is that we're all in a different place spiritually. Right? Some of us have been following after God for a really long time. For better or for worse, we're doing the best we can, right? And some of you are here today because it's a new year and it's a new day and you think, maybe I do need to lean into God. Maybe, maybe it's real. And I love that about our church. But just for a second, let's pretend that we're all on the same page, okay? Here's the same page that we're on. God is totally other than us. He's other than us. He spoke into being all that we know, all that we are, all that we see, and all that we are yet discovering every day. He spoke it into being. Here that he is all-knowing. There is nothing that escapes him, and our knowledge has limits. He is all-present. We are only present at one place at a time. This is a God who is all-powerful, and our strength is limited, and we feel the effects of that. Friends, for this God who is other, that has made all that we see and are and know, to step into our time and space will feel like a miracle to us. But for him, that's just who he is. He's other. He says, I am the I am. I am the I am. And I will, when I think it is right, when I think it is true, when it is in my story, I will step into your time and space and I will do my will. So if you're a Christian here today, I want you to hear me say this. You follow a God who is a deliverer. He is able to deliver you. He will deliver you. He is a God of miracles. Do not reduce him to just a superhuman. He is a God of miracles. Address him and pray to him and and go to him in that way. You're his child. If you're here today and you're just thinking, I don't know about this whole God thing. Let me offer this as a thought. There was a guy named Augustine. And he was one of the most brilliant minds that has ever been. Absolutely brilliant. And he spent the first most of his life taking all the gifts that he had, all the brilliance that he had, and using it for evil. I mean, he wrecked his life. He wrecked relationships. He was like an addict. He was a disaster. He wrecked and wreaked havoc everywhere he went. He took what God had given him and used it for bad. But then he hit the bottom, and he thought, how did I get here? And he turned his brilliant mind, and he said, maybe, maybe God is real. And this is how much faith he had in the beginning, about this much, because he was so brilliant that most of what he had were unbelievable questions, ones that I read and I go, who is this guy? He had so many questions, but he finally stepped out of all those questions, and he just took this toe step into faith. And then he said this, and this is what I think helps today on our spiritual journey. He said, we are always faith-seeking understanding. 
That's the whole spiritual journey, friends. We take the little step that we have of faith, maybe the tiny ounce of belief that we have, and we step into that, and then we say, God, give me understanding. And then we take the next little step, and we say, God, give me understanding. I still have all these questions. I'm not writing them off, but I don't have to answer them all before I take that first step. Faith, seeking, understanding. Here's another thought from this story. Sometimes God will deliver us from the furnace. And sometimes he will deliver us in the furnace. Friends, if you're in a furnace right now, here's perhaps a question to ask yourself. God, how do you want to change me in this furnace? Things are changed and they're altered in furnaces And so you can go to God the Father and you can say, God, how do you want to change me in this furnace? How do you want to change my soul? How do you want to change my habits? How do you want to change what I try to control? How do you, Lord, how do you want to change me? Take my eyes off all the attacks. See, they could have bowed down. These guys, think of what they had lost, friends. Think of what they had had been taken from them completely unfairly. They could have bowed down to bitterness. They could have bowed down to self-pity. Really, God? I mean, we rose up in this foreign land, and we've only been faithful to you, and now you couldn't even let them look the other way? Really, God? They could have bowed down to that. But instead, instead, they said, God, I will trust you with my story. And I know you were able, but if you don't, I still win in Christ. Not Christ for them yet, but Christ for us. A word of caution, I think, comes from this story. For those of us that are trying to follow, follow Christ, John Calvin says, the human heart is a factory of idols. So God said, I'm intended to be up here, right? Like, that's my rightful place. But our heart is subtle and deceptive, friends. It's slippery, and we don't even see it. And suddenly we turn around and look at our life and go, good grief. Man, that has become my ultimate thing that I think about. That's become the obsession that keeps me awake at night. This thing has become what my entire life and heart and and thinking are oriented to. And that means that thing is in the place of God right now. The easy things are material things. Oh, we, we make material things our gods, right? That's easy. I think it's much more slippery than that. I think political power is one for Americans. I think we seethe with hate against each other and we argue about what is better and what is right as if to say, if we get the right person in the White House, we'll be saved. Really? We just took that party and made him our God. Really? I think significance is a God for us in America. What if God called you to live a completely quiet, obedient, unseen, unnoticed, unglorified life? Would he still, would he still love you? Would that still be okay? Someone said to me recently, Holly, Your kids can be an idol. 
My kids are my, my husband and my kids are my greatest gifts that God has given me. And, and I can make them an idol, right? I can be like, you know what, I'll do your math homework for you. Yeah, I know you're really tired. And we're going to get you SAT tutor, and I'm going to drive you six hours a day to 27 lessons. And I've heard this story now since I was in my 20s, not before that. And I spent this week many times asking the Lord to show me, God, what has slipped into my life where only you should be? Because my heart is sneaky. It's sneaky. And I said, God, please don't let me miss it. Let me be faithful to you. Give me the strength to move it out and put you there because I want my life to work the way that you intended it to work. One last thought. I think in America, a lot of Christ followers are what I would call furnace avoiders. It's, I say in America because we have more of an opportunity to do this than people that follow Christ in other countries. We're not called to the carpet as often as people in other countries. And I think we can, if we're not careful, be furnace avoiders that we never draw a line. Right? Because, because we, we do live in Babylon as believers today still, and we are aware of the fact that if I don't draw lines and make a scene and take a stand and have a conversation, then life's just kind of easier. But that's not what God called us to. When he delivered me, he said, Now, Holly, don't die on every hill because that's just obnoxious. No, no one wants to be around that. But every once in a while, there's going to be a conversation or moment. And, and you're going to know in your heart that I put you there. And I want you to live full of love and full of grace for that person. But I want you to be brave for me. I mean, I want you to, in love and in grace, I want you to draw a line. And I want you to have a conversation because I'm trying to reach them too. And as crazy as it sounds... I might use you sometimes to fall back. What will your legacy be? What will it be? We're all either going to get feeble or we're going to die young. So what will your legacy be? Will you draw a line sometimes? Will you live in such a way that someone would want to know your God? In spite of what you see as your present circumstances, will you choose to believe that God is still in control? Will you trust him with your story? Would you be brave for him? Let me pray for us. Father God, I thank you that you gave us stories to remind us that we are not the first people to live in Babylon. And Lord, as much as the world wants us to think that we're alone, wants to build a news network and a, and a media that says, man, you're alone. This thing's dying out. That's a lie. You are mighty and you are still delivering and you're a God of miracles. And we celebrate that today. And we say, God, would you renew in our hearts, putting you where you belong not because you want to slap down rules on us, because you want us to give us real life. 
Lord, give us the courage to choose that. Help us to be brave. I pray that in the name of Jesus. Amen.